0: And good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 is where we'll study today. And before we dive into the text, I want to say thank you for the way you've cared for my family over the last several days. Your love, your support, your patience, your help in a hundred different ways has all been super encouraging to us. More than anything, we are thankful for your prayers That's what we need the most in these days. Last week I said to you, my mom is not well and may soon leave this world to go to be with Jesus. And that's still true. Uh, She's under hospice care now. She's comfortable. We are able to be right by her side. It's just a matter of time until she sees the Lord face to face. I told you last week that that is certainly a major win for her, and it is a major wound for us, a wound to our hearts, and that's still true. And so we ask for your continued love and support and prayers in these days. In our study of Revelation last week, we turned a corner in the book. This is where we have longed to be for some time, and it just keeps getting better from here. Honestly, it keeps getting better from here. Uh, Through the rest of the book, last week we saw more of the response from heaven to the last judgment, the just judgment of God upon his enemies. The word that rang out from the text last week over and over, the idea that was consistently communicated is hallelujah. Hallelujah is a rich Hebrew word that really just gets imported into nearly every language on the planet just as it is told you that the Hebrew word for hallelujah is hallelujah. The Greek word for hallelujah is hallelujah. Josh said the Spanish word for hallelujah is hallelujah. I got a text while I was preaching last week that says the Kurdish word for hallelujah is hallelujah. Um, And I want you to remember that hallelujah is a command. It is an invitation to praise Yahweh. It is an invitation to worship the Lord together. We want to remember that, and we want to be constantly encouraging one another to do just that. We want to be stirring one another up, just like we saw the saints and the angels and the elders and the living creature doing last week in that heavenly scene. So that was one of the applications last week. Hallelujah. Let's, let's praise the Lord together. You praise Yahweh. You worship the Lord. Let's do that together. And, and we did that last week, and it was sweet to sing his praises with you uh, at the end of the service last week. The other application from last week was a question about whether or not you have received the invitation to the wedding feast. I'm going to talk more about that wedding feast in a minute. I didn't mean just generally have you received that invitation. All of you in this room have heard someone at some point invite you to repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. What I meant was have you personally heard? Have you personally heard that invitation in a way that you couldn't help but respond? And I told you last week that Ms. Taylor did. We celebrated with her in baptism last week. We rejoiced over the invitation that has come to her. She's got a seat at the table for the wedding feast. I told you last week that my mom has received that invitation. So, my brother said to one of the doctors in Evansville this week, This is not the end for her. It's not the end. Asher heard that invitation. You heard him profess new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ last week and we're going to baptize him. We had planned to do it today, but we're going to wait till my dad can be here. I've heard rumor this week that there's another young person ready to make a profession of faith later on today. We'll rejoice with her in a little while. People are hearing the voice of God call them to life. What about you? What about you? So I told you last week I would give you some of the background of that wedding feast that John mentions, that great picture of celebration. Let me do that quickly now. I want you to hear this, and and hopefully it will build some of the excitement in you that it has in me. I'm grateful for James Hamilton Jr. for outlining this very concisely. Basically, a, a first century Jewish wedding had three parts, three distinct parts, separated parts. The first part was engagement or betrothal. We read about that in the scriptures. You know that you're most familiar with this because of the Christmas story, right? That that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Well, in that process, in step number one of the wedding process, the groom leaves his father's house with his best man, and he makes his way to the prospective, prospective bride's father's house. He goes to her dad's house, and he meets with her dad and makes an arrangement with her and gives him some money. Um, The bride price, you might call it. In fact, James Hamilton says she is bought with a price. That's a a very uh, almost crude way to understand it, but it's not an anti-gospel way to understand it. This bride is purchased for the groom with a price, just like we have been bought with a price for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that commitment between the husband and the wife, this prospective groom and his prospective bride, really begins right now, right then, at that agreement, when the bride... Price is paid. That commitment really begins then. And you know this from the Christmas story as well, because that's the stage that Mary and Joseph were in when Joseph wanted to distance himself from her. In fact, the text says he wanted to divorce her quietly, and it would have taken divorce to separate that commitment that had been made even in betrothal. And at this moment, once the agreement is made, the bride is consecrated or set apart for the groom. In fact, you may think of it like this she is made holy. Unto the groom. That's what holy means. It means set apart, separated, different, uh, consecrated unto something. She is made holy unto that groom of hers. And this commitment at betrothal is sealed by sharing a cup of wine together. They share a cup of wine at the agreement of this commitment. In fact, they talk about the covenant that is made with that cup of wine. And all of that has gospel implications, even in that initial agreement. And once that part is over, the groom leaves. The groom goes back to his father's house and that begins the second part of the process, the part of preparation. And sometimes this lasts about 12 months. Most of the time it would be around 12 months, maybe a little more, maybe a little bit less, but it was an extended period of time. And during this time of preparation, the groom is making a room for him and his bride in his father's house. While he is away from her, He is preparing a room for her in his father's house. Does that sound familiar at all? And the bride, in the meantime, is preparing herself for the wedding as well. Like she knows wedding day is coming and she is getting ready for that with her friends and her family. She's getting her uh, attire together. She's maybe bathing in different ways than she normally would. She is anticipating and preparing for her union with the groom. Anticipation is the key theme of this period of preparation. And that anticipation builds until the big day comes. So the second part is preparation. The third part is the wedding itself at this point the groom along with his best man and his friends they get dressed up in all their best clothes and they make their way back to the bride's house but what you need to understand is no one knew exactly when that was going to happen it's not as if when he made the arrangement with her father that he said mark it down on may the 10th i will be back to get her There was no date on the calendar. It was all just this, the bride needed to live in readiness in preparation for the day her groom came back to get her. In fact, this whole thing is unknown. And so the groom would often travel to the bride's house in the middle of the night so as to surprise her. And his arrival would be preceded by a shout. We read about this shout in Matthew chapter 25 verse 6. Someone would say, here's the bridegroom. Come out, come out to meet him. All of this, all of this is what we are being invited to. All of this is a picture of the gospel. The groom makes his way back in the middle of the night and surprises the bride. Someone says, here he is, come out to meet him. And then the bride, along with her friends, would come out Often they would have these lamps that were lit all the time, ready, full of oil. She and her friends just waiting for that day. Maybe they knew about when he would come, but not exactly when he would come. And they were just sitting there ready, waiting for the groom to come get her. And then once they go out, the party really gets started. And this wedding feast was the culmination of all of that work, all of that buildup, all of that anticipation. The wedding feast is the royal celebration of that union Full union between the bride and the groom. And this is the picture that is given to us in Revelation chapter 19, that we have been invited to that feast. In fact, not just just been invited to it, we're not just bystanders, we're not just guests off in the distance. We are the bride. And he's coming soon. One of these days, someone's gonna say, he's here, come out. We will rejoice forevermore with him at the table. Well, this week in Revelation we're going to encounter another feast. But this feast that we will look at at the end of chapter 19 cannot be more different from the wedding feast that we looked at at the beginning of chapter 19. There, at the wedding feast, the faithful ones, that is those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, are invited as honored guests, as the bride herself, to enjoy the celebration with Jesus. The feast that we're going to look at today, the enemies of God, are the feast. God is going to invite the birds of the air to prepare themselves to feast on their dead bodies after he slays them in righteous judgment. The enemies of God will be the feast. In many ways, Revelation divides the room. One scholar says it's a tale of two cities. Revelation is a tale of two cities. It's the city of Babylon, the worldly kingdom, and the city of God, the new Jerusalem. It's a tale of two women, the bride and the harlot, It's a tale of two feasts, the wedding feast and the slaughter of the enemies of God. Revelation divides the room, and I wonder which you are in for, which feast will you be a part of, which woman are you, which city do you live in? Let's look at it in Revelation chapter 11. We're going to get through verse 21 today. This is God's word. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and the small and great. And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask in the name of Jesus that you use this passage today to make us bold, courageous, confident, and faithful as your people, knowing that the day of victory, your victory that you share with us, the day of victory is coming. Use this text to cause us to look every enemy in the eye, even death itself, and say to it, your time is limited. The king is coming. Use this text to give us a vision of Jesus that inspires and empowers faithful endurance through difficulty, through suffering, through persecution, even unto certain eternal victory in Christ Jesus. Or use this text to terrify us of our impending eternal judgment. Use it to show us our sin and your holiness. Use it to wake us up to the reality of our lostness apart from you and bring men and women and boys and girls, to faith in Jesus Christ. Let them hear your voice inviting them to the marriage feast, not to be dinner for the vultures. We pray that you do it for your sake, for their good, but for your eternal glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a lot of ground we're going to cover today. We're going to break the text into three parts. First, we will see this glorious vision of Jesus a glorious vision of Jesus. Second, we will see this haunting invitation to the birds, a haunting invitation to those birds. And third, we will see the undisputed victory over God's enemies, undisputed victory over God's enemies. Look at the glorious vision of Jesus in verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have seen a whole lot of things in Revelation. Up to this point, we have seen a whole lot of things, a lot of angels, we've seen elders, we've seen living creatures, we've seen martyrs and saints and witnesses. We have also seen beasts, dragons, prostitutes, demons. But friends, this is what Revelation is all about. This is who Revelation is all about. Remember, from the very beginning of this study, I told you this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is about him. You might remember that last week, John tried to worship that angel that was speaking to him. But he was immediately rebuked and directed to worship God. This is God. Jesus is God and we worship him. There is no rebuke. You fall on your face before this one and you worship him because he is God. Danny Akin says of this text, there is not a more glorious description of our coming king in the whole Bible than verses 11 to 16. Not a more glorious description of our coming king than this in all of the Bible. And there's a lot to this description. It is worth checking out every single detail. But as we look at the details, I don't want you to get lost in the, and miss the big picture. This is a glorious appearing. This is a victorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That glory and that victory is seen in the detail of the white horse. He comes riding a white horse. That imagery is intense. He is a mighty warrior. He is a conquering king. Those are the ones who ride white horses. So this is not at all like his first coming. You may remember in his first coming when he went into Jerusalem, he was not riding on a white horse. At the triumphal entry, he didn't ride on a white horse. He rode on a donkey's colt, humbly mounted on a donkey's colt. In fact, his whole first coming was marked by that kind of humility, that kind of mercy. But friends, this second coming that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 19 is not like that. It is different. It is a coming in glory and power and majesty And it will be unmistakable. So we say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Worship this king with me. He comes riding on a white horse. He is called faithful and true. Unlike Satan, the liar. Unlike the false prophets. Unlike those liars and deceivers. He is faithful and true. He judges and makes war. But his war and his judgment is righteous. It is absolutely just. Unlike the rulers of the earth, he judges and makes war in righteousness. The text says that his eyes are a flame of fire. That is, they are pure. They are penetrating. They are all-knowing. He sees it all, and he sees it rightly. He's not deceived by what he sees. He sees everything perfectly. He's got a bunch of crowns on his head. I love that part. He's got all the crowns on his head, in fact, it would seem. When Jesus comes, he does not come as the king of this little place, for this little time, within these little borders someone has drawn. No, he's the king everywhere, all the time. And so he wears all the crowns. All the crowns on one head. If you remember some of those grotesque pictures of the beast and the dragon, they had a bunch of heads and crowns on a bunch of different heads. He has all the crowns on one head. He is the one king overall. He rules and he reigns. Maybe the most interesting thing to me in this description, though, is this, this business about a name that no one knows but himself. Like I, I was especially struck by that. I didn't know what all we were going to sing today, and I didn't know that we were going to do Revelation song with that thing in the middle about the names of Jesus. And, man, that, that stirs us up, right? Like when, when we consider all of these names of Jesus and all the things that he is, it stirs us up. Jesus, your name is power, Right? We we want to rejoice over that. But this text teaches us that there's a name that no one knows but him. There is this name that he has that only he knows. That is super interesting. And I think there are at least a couple of things going on with that. First, to know someone's name and to call them by their name in ancient times was to exercise power over them. It was a way to exercise power over them. And, And you may initially say, that's weird, I don't understand that, I cannot relate to that at all, but you can relate to it. You can absolutely relate to it, especially as children, when your parent called you by your name, like especially your full name. Like if I heard my mom say, Christopher Thomas Winkleman, she was exercising power over me, right? There was authority over me in that and I knew it was big trouble. Jesus has a name that no one knows but him. There is no one who can take his name and try to exercise power and authority over him. I think that's part of what's going on there. The second part, I think, is even more interesting because we know a lot about Jesus. We have seen a lot about Jesus. He has chosen to reveal a whole lot of himself to us. In fact, he has chosen to reveal all that we need for life and salvation and godliness. He has revealed everything we need But he has not revealed all that there is. There is a name that only he knows. This book is the revelation of Jesus. It is the unveiling. It is the revealing of Jesus. And yet, this teaches us that there's a part that we are not privy to. Daryl Johnson says, even as full as revelation is, there is still more to be revealed. There is more to discover about him. And that should excite us about heaven. Don't you love learning more about Jesus now? Like like as we walk with Jesus, don't you love learning more about him here and now, seeing him more clearly as we study his word, as we walk with him, as we fellowship as his people? Don't you love learning more about him? Yeah, that's gonna be our experience forever and ever. We're going to be knowing him more and more and more forever and ever and ever. There is a revelation. We have a sufficient revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ here and now. But there is a name that only he knows. We have seen enough, but we have not seen it all. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We will spend all of eternity getting to know him more and more. The second most interesting thing to me in this description of Jesus is the blood on his robe. Notice he's got this white robe, which is, which is pretty interesting. I, I heard a, a preacher one time say, if, if you are, are going to fight someone, like if you were a schoolyard boxer, fighter, and you had scheduled a fight with some bully in the hallway or in the alleyway, and he shows up wearing all white, you're in trouble. He's confident that he will win if he shows up wearing all white. But this white robe that Jesus wears, it says, is dipped in blood. And one way to think about this is that it is his own blood. The blood on Jesus' robe is his own blood from the cross. And I think there's validity to that because that is the place where this battle has ultimately been won. Like, the enemy has ultimately been defeated on the cross. Right? Jesus won by dying and rising again. He has conquered... Because he is the lamb who stands as if slain. Remember that? He is conquered by his own death and resurrection. The ultimate victory has already been won. And this battle that we're reading about here, Armageddon, is already decided. It is already decided because of his death and resurrection. So maybe we would say the blood that is on his robe is his own blood from the cross by which we have victory. By which the victory is ultimately won. Or... Maybe this blood on his robe is a reference to the many battles that he has already fought on our behalf, that he is constantly fighting on our behalf. In other words, he shows up, and this is not his first time at war, he shows up as an experienced soldier, an experienced warrior, fighting on our behalf regularly. In fact, Jeremiah calls him the dread warrior. When Jesus shows up, he's no rookie. He has fought and won over and over and over on our behalf. He's an experienced warrior. He is the dread warrior. His robe is dipped in blood. I also like that the text says he's got a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth to slay the nations. It teaches us that his word, is powerful Again, none of this is literal picture, right? None of this is like Jesus has a, a big sword coming out of his mouth. This is, a, this is apocalyptic literature that teaches us that it is his word that is powerful. It is his word that is effective. It is his word by which he slays the nations. His word is powerful. When he speaks, there is power. And we've seen this all throughout the scriptures, right? How did this come to be? All of this? spoke and it was spoke he didn't mix stuff together he didn't make some magical potion he didn't light it on fire he spoke and it was there is power in his word we see this all throughout jesus ministry on the earth he heals by his word he casts out demons by his word he calms the sea by his word do you remember that scene jesus is in the boat with all of his buddies He's asleep, but they're freaking out because the storm has come and they think they're gonna sink and die and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and they say, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus wakes up from his sleep and he gets on the boat and he, what does he do? He says, hush, be still. And what happens? The storm is gone. Immediately upon the word of Jesus, the storm is still. Think about this at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. This friend who got sick, Jesus doesn't get in a hurry to go. He gets there four days later after Lazarus has died. Everybody's distraught. Even his sister says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. He says, your brother will rise again. She's like, oh yeah, I know, I know. He's like, no, take me to the tomb. He says, roll the stone away. And they say, no, 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 it will stink. He's been dead th- four days. It will stink. He says, roll the stone away. And then what's he do? CPR, mouth to mouth. He speaks. Lazarus, come forth. He commands the dead man to come out of the tomb. And what happens? The dead man comes out of the tomb. There is authority in the word of Jesus Christ. Maybe my favorite story about this is in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is approached by a centurion, a Roman soldier, who wants him to heal his slave. He's got this slave who's sick, and Jesus says, Okay, I'll come. I'll come to your house and I'll I'll heal him. And the centurion slave, this I mean, the centurion soldier, this Roman soldier, says to Jesus, You don't have to go to my house. Just say the word. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says to the people around him, the Jews who were standing around, he's like, that's what faith looks like from this Roman centurion. You don't have to come to my house, just say the word. And then he goes on and explains, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be in charge. I got soldiers, when I say to them, go, they go. When I say to them, come, they come. They they listen to me. They do what I say. All you have to do is say it, Jesus, because you have that kind of authority. He's got a sharp sword that comes out of his mouth, and it is powerful, and he will use it to slay the nations. Notice also, we're not covering all this, but Last thing I want you to notice is that he is king of kings and lord of lords. King of kings and lord of lords. He rules and reigns over all, forever and ever. There's no one higher than him. This is a glorious picture of our coming king, is it not? But before we move on, I want you to notice. This is not the main thing in this text, but it's a thing that we need to see. Look at verse 14. It says, The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, We're following him on white horses. That's us. We are with him as his people. We don't fight. We don't need to fight. He doesn't need us to fight, but we are with him and we share in his victory. And we have clean clothes, clean clothes that are like his, that were given to us by him. We saw that in the text last week. And we ride white horses as well. We are identified with him in every possible way. But most important, we see that we follow him. Circle that. Highlight that. They follow him. That's what we do as his people. That's what we do now. We follow him. That's what we will do then. We will follow him. That's what we will do forevermore. We will follow him. In fact, that was his call from the very beginning, was it not? Follow me. Doesn't he say that to Peter and John and James and Matthew? All of these guys, does he not say, follow me? And is that not what he has said to us at conversion? Is that not what he said to Asher just recently? Follow me. And on the one hand, that call to follow him is a call to follow him in suffering, in pain, in persecution. He says, follow me means take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me it also means follow me on a white horse that's part of the part of the deal too we don't just follow him in suffering and pain we follow him in glory we share in his suffering and we share in his glory by his grace take up your cross ride on the white horse we sing sometimes at the end of a song that is great bear your cross as you wait for the crown follow me jesus says there's this glorious picture, and there's this haunting invitation. Look at verse 17. It says, "Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, "Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great." This is the best trash-talking scene in all of history. The angel tells the birds, ravens, vultures, buzzards, get ready because you are going to feast tonight. Notice in the text that this feast is called the great supper of God, and it is starkly contrasted with the marriage supper of the lamb. The marriage supper of the lamb is for his people. This feast for the birds is for his enemies. We, as his friends, as his people, will sit at the table. They, as his enemies, will be on the table. Not not the same table, but they will be the menu for the birds. Notice also in this text the lack of discrimination amongst the enemies of God. He tells the birds, you will feast on the flesh of kings, commanders, mighty men, and also slaves, and free men, small men, great men. In fact, the text says all men who have rejected Jesus and embraced Babylon There's no distinction. It's the same way amongst the friends of God. There's no distinction amongst those at the table, at the wedding feast. The small and the great are there. Slaves and free are there. Rich men and poor men are there. Men and women are there. White folks and black folks are there. There's no discrimination amongst those who are at the table of salvation. And there is no discrimination amongst those who are at the feast for the birds the small and the great. Being small won't save you. Being small won't damn you. And being great won't either. James Hamilton Jr. says, the point of chapter 19, verse 18, is that neither status, influence, nor insignificance will exempt anyone from God's justice. The gospel is a leveler of persons because neither wealth nor status brings anyone closer to God than another. Everyone, everyone is in need of justification by faith in Christ. The judgment is also a leveler of persons because neither advantage nor disadvantage will affect the justice of God friends no matter who you are great or small slave or free no matter who you are the question is are you trusting in Jesus the question is not how many people know your name the question is not how much power or influence you have the question is not how much money do you make how much education do you have where do you live The question is, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? If not, you're on the menu for the birds. If so, you're at the wedding feast of the lamb. There is this haunting invitation to the birds. And then in verse 19, we see this undisputed victory over God's enemies. Look at it. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. We saw this group these kings of the earth with the beast, gathering up for war way back in chapter 16. Back in chapter 16, they were gathered up in verses 13 to 16. They think there will be a great battle. They think they have a chance to defeat the Lord and his army. They could not be more wrong. They could not be more wrong. They don't stand a chance. In fact, all of this buildup, all of this anticipation, how many of you have been looking forward to Armageddon? Like in our study of Revelation, oh, I can't wait till he talks about Armageddon. You know how long Armageddon lasts? About one second. This great battle at the end is no battle at all. Jesus shows up and it's over. Chuck Swindoll says, This is good. Let's cut to the chase. Before anybody on earth can utter the word Armageddon, the battle will be over. When God determines the end has come, curtains. How should we respond to this? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Behold the power of our God. He shows up and seizes the beast. There's not this epic battle like we see in Lord of the Rings or in the Avengers movies or something like that. There's not this great long-lasting battle where we're not sure who's going to overcome. Jesus shows up and he seizes the beast and the false prophet, throws him in the lake alive. Hallelujah, behold the power of our God. The expository commentary says, the armies are facing one another, poised to fight, but the battle turns out to be ridiculously easy. The power and glory of the beast and the false prophet, though they seem remarkable, are no match for Jesus Christ. So what do we say? Hallelujah, praise the Lord, behold the victory of our God. That should be our response to all this, not like, oh, I wanted to know more. What more could you want to know than that Jesus overcomes? Jesus is victorious. It's undisputed. The beast and the false prophet, they are two persons of that unholy trinity we've met. They are seized and they are thrown alive into the lake of fire. It seems really simple. Snatches them up and throws them in. But those two are not alone. In a similar way as we ride with Jesus on white horses and we enjoy victory with him, those who reject Jesus, those who go the way of the world, those who align themselves with the beast and the false prophet and the dragon, they will be taken down with him. They will be destroyed with them. Danny Akin says, captured and condemned are two words that describe the future of all who say no to God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ. Captured and condemned are two words that describe the future of all who say no to God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ. Revelation really is a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two women. It's a tale of two feasts. And Grant Osborne brings it right home when he says, these verses show us that there are only two kinds of people in the world, Those who follow Christ and those who reject Christ. Both will participate in great banquets. Believers will feast at the wedding supper of the lamb and unbelievers will be the feast eaten by the carrion birds. What about you? Where do you stand in all of this? Only two kinds of people in this room. Only two kinds of people in this world. Those who trust and follow after Jesus and those who reject him. Three applications from this text today. Number one, behold our God. We need to see Jesus and we are given a picture of Jesus in this text. I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse and he who sat on it. That's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at our God who is victorious. We need to see Jesus more than anything else at any time in our lives. We need to see Jesus all the time. My question is, how do we get this kind of picture? How how do we get a vision of Jesus like this? Do we isolate ourselves on an island in the Mediterranean? Do we go off by ourselves and hide in a cave and try to get really quiet so that we can see Jesus I had a heartbreaking conversation with my dad on the way home this week he said I, I just need to hear a word from God I just need to hear from the Lord in all of this and he said I've, I've tried to be really quiet I've tried to be really still I've tried to put my mind in neutral and just ask the Lord to speak to me in that stillness and in that quietness and I said dad I, I get that But if you want to hear from the Lord, open the book and read. Put your nose in the book and read. Meditate on one word or one phrase. I know that he has spoken. He has a word for you, but I don't think you will find it most easily in a closet, in neutral. You want to see Jesus? He's right here. Here. Read. Read. He will show himself to you. I think I can promise that. I think I say that with confidence and authority. You might get a dream. You might get a vision. You might get a still small voice that speaks something to you. But all of those things, you're going to have to weigh against the word anyway. How about pour into the word and let the word pour into you? And if God gives you some other thing, it will align perfectly with this. And you'll be confident in it because you're rooted, grounded in the word of God. We need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the best way to fix our eyes on Jesus is to be in the book. Behold our God on a white horse. Number two, I want you to know that victory is certain. We learn from this text that victory is certain. The expository commentary says, sometimes it seems as if evil will triumph forever. But such an impression does not accord with reality. Jesus is coming again, and the rulers and people opposed to him will be destroyed. Evil is no illusion, but goodness is always stronger and has an enduring permanence that evil cannot match. Victory is certain for the people of God, so therefore be patient. I'll be patient because his timing is perfect. The victory might not come when you want it, when you expect it, but victory will come. The day of victory is certain and it is coming. Be patient. Be faithful and obedient as you wait. As you wait for that day of ultimate victory, don't wander from the Lord. Don't say, oh, I'll just live however I want until I hear, who's oh, coming. The bridegroom's coming. Better get ready. It'll be too late to get ready then. As you wait in anticipation, live in obedience to him. Be prepared for his coming. Keep your lamp oiled. The wick trimmed just right so that you are ready when he comes. Be faithful and obedient. The day of victory is coming, so don't quit. Don't give up. When it feels like you're losing every day, don't quit. Don't give up. Persevere. Even when it seems the whole world, all of its armies, the devil himself, all of his minions, even when it seems like they're all arrayed against you. Even if it seems that they are winning and they will go on winning. Even when it seems that all you do is lose, put your anchor down here in Revelation chapter 19 because the king is coming. And when he does, no one will stand against him. And when he comes, we will be with him and we will share in his victory. Certain. Third application is what about you? You're going to be with him? You're going to be with him on that day? You have a seat at the table? Or are you against him? You have a seat at the wedding feast? Or will you be picked apart by the vultures? Small or great, slave or free, all that matters is trusting in Christ. And it matters forever and ever. God is holy, must punish sin, man is sinful and deserves his wrath and Christ came to save sinners. By his death in our place and his resurrection, we can be saved. We repent of our sins and we trust in Christ for salvation. So I invite you to repent and believe today. Let's stand together and pray. God, we ask that you'll use this word For the good of your people, to give us confidence, courage, boldness, in the face of every enemy, that we would know that the King is coming and victory is certain. pray that you will inspire and empower faithful endurance in us through this vision of Jesus. Pray for those who are on the outside today. Use this text to terrify them of impending judgment. Use this text to wake them up to their lostness. Pray that you turn their eyes to Jesus. That they would understand your holiness, their sinfulness, Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. And that you would give them faith to trust in Christ and repentance to turn from sin would save them for their good for your glory forever and ever pray these things in jesus name